morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning as we get ready to worship. And it's like, you know, even though we know we're in September, I hope that the days get a little cooler, don't you think? I think so, man. It's just getting a little tough there. But we thank the Lord for his help in all things, even in that area. Uh, this morning, as we prepare for our message, our pastor's message, uh, I'd like to read, uh, well, first of all, let me go through the announcements first. First of all, like, like every Sunday, the youth group meet at 6 p.m. And this year, there's going to be a, a fall retreat for the women, and that is scheduled for October the 6th through the 9th. If you'd like some more information, just talk to Priscilla or Diane Word about it, and they'll give you more information about all the details that entail for that. And, and, and so uh, if you're interested, make a point in your calendar for, for those days. Also coming up on September the 17th is our uh, monthly church luncheon, and so mark that on your calendar as well. And like always, as, uh, we're always encouraged to pray for the ministries here at El Paso Bible Church. Uh, they're on your, the back of your bulletin. And so um, just mark those down also on your calendar. This morning, uh, in preparation for our pastor's message, would you open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 6 through 9 this morning. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is in that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and, worth, and worthy of all acceptance. Let's pray. Father God, one of the key words there is faithfulness. And Lord, this morning, we're here all together, Father, ready to worship in song and even in word, Lord, because of your faithfulness. Father, we have life because of your faithfulness. We have every part of our being because of your faithfulness. And we say thank you, Father, for being a loving God. Even though we don't deserve it, Father, we know that uh, you extend your grace, your love, and your mercy to all of us, the believers in Christ. And so, Lord, we know that there are many out during the summer, and for various reasons, we're just hoping for the return, Lord, this uh, next week or so as we also prepare for the coming uh, week and also father as we look forward to the next week lord as we worship together and so lord we thank you so much for the for your love and the lord jesus christ father because it's through him that we have forgiveness and all so many things father that come through that with this sacrifice on the cross so this morning lord just Help us prepare our hearts, Father, for not only for the singing together and the songs, but also, Father, in the preparation of the message that you prepare our pastor's heart, Father, through his faithfulness to this body. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. 
days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God
worship our King. Come, let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how His love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great things. Sing it out. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom. Awake and alive. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great
sound once lost now found heaven came down and grace rescued me sweet the sound once lost now found heaven came down and grace rescued me how sweet the sound once lost now found heaven came down and grace rescued
may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church. Uh, children, remember it is Communion Sunday, so just adventurers are meeting today for Children's Church. So if you're in that younger group of Children's Church, then you can go ahead and go. You all know where to go. If you don't know where to go, follow, and that'll work out okay for everybody. I want to mention a couple things, um, opportunities that we, we have upcoming. And one is that uh, uh, we have an opportunity for two things. One, constitutionally, normally, the congregation uh, nominates people for leadership here. Um, and often we don't mention it, and so I want to mention it. Uh, I want to mention it that we have opportunities for people to serve. Um, it's always up to the elder board to determine uh, if the nominees are qualified biblically and all of that, but it's up to you guys uh, to identify people, and the, the main qualifications are, to be honest, biblical, yes, uh, but frequently the obstacle is uh, people who have a desire <laughs> to serve. Um, scripture does talk about the fact that those who desire to be an elder or to do the work of an elder desire to do a good thing. Um, and so it is important that we emphasize the nature of the good thing that it is. It's also important that we ought to emphasize that it is work, right? It's a good work. It's work. So we want to understand that, engage in it. Uh, we have men on our elder board, thankfully, that have been serving for a long time. Uh, Bill, how long have you been on the elder board? Long time. Long time. Ernie, too. Uh, and, and even I, uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't have a term <laughs> as the pastor, uh, but I feel like I've been around a long time, and I, I can't imagine being much longer. Anyway, if you are desirous yourself, men, um, and you understand the biblical qualifications, you can certainly nominate yourself. That's volunteering or somebody else. So I want to mention that ahead of time because we, as elders, we need opportunity to review those nominations. So that won't be until January. That's our congregational meeting at which we would next consider that normally deacons as well. Um, so that is an opportunity that I want you all to know about uh, so that you can do that um, and have opportunity to have that input uh, the other thing is that I would, uh, we have a lot of untapped potential uh, with some room for other classes and other ministries that we can have. Um, and I have a curriculum uh, that is designed for married couples. It is a five session video based curriculum. It would be best led by a couple, and it's only five weeks. Did I say that once or twice? I'll say it again. It's only five sessions. Five one-hour sessions. Only five one-hour sessions. I say that so that you don't realize you're not going to be put in bondage. You're not going to be dragging around a ball and chain for 20 years teaching the whole Bible in a group that you oopsed into, right? But five sessions. And if you would like to lead something like that, really facilitate it uh, as a couple um, I would like for you to review this material and see if it's something you'd like to use. It could be done as a Sunday school class. It could be done as a small group. It could be done as both. You could meet more than once a week even. Imagine that. 
Um, and I know we have, we have a very, very high participation rate in our body, and I want to thank you for that. That is all you. Um, you have volunteered. I don't chase people. I don't beat them with a stick. I don't use a pry bar to shoehorn people into serving, which is what everybody has told me for 20 years I have to do to get people to do things. So I want to thank you for that. This is just an opportunity for you to volunteer for if you would like to. All right. So those are the opportunities that we have. Uh, we're going to continue on this morning in First Peter. Um, and I, I hope that you're finding this productive. I, I find it tremendously encouraging, especially into this portion of First Peter chapter 4, very particularly. I don't know. I, anybody else feel like they're dragging a massive load behind them all day, every day lately? Yeah? No? Yes? Juan works for the Border Patrol. Can you figure? I, you know, and, and it's not just that. I'm used to working hard. I mean, I, we grew up working hard, making soda, working our tails off. But there's something different. And it may be because I'm curmudgeonly. I will openly admit to being slightly on the curmudgeonly part of the spectrum. Slightly, slightly, slightly. But I find myself being angry a lot. Can I say that? But pastor, you're supposed to be an inoffensive nitwit. I know. I know what culture expects me to be. Expects me to be an inoffensive, smiley nitwit. I'm not. I might be a nitwit, but I'm not inoffensive and smiley. I find myself angry a lot. At the load that I feel that I'm asked to drag along just to make it, right? I feel like that. It's difficulties. And I, I've checked. Did I make some drastically stupid decisions recently? Not recently. Have I made drastically stupid decisions before? I don't think I'm probably alone in the room, right? Amen. Amen. I get some amens every once in a while. Only when I talk about my own stupidity, so whatever. But First Peter has a lot to do with how do I deal with that? What are my expectations, right? I'm a, I'm a choice alien, and you are a choice alien. That means that I have a purpose, a special purpose, and I have no expectation that life is going to be simple or easy while I do it. So we've talked a lot about that, about the future, what it holds for us, the rewards, the inheritance, the blessing of regeneration of the future that we have in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the Father, our obligations to each other to love one another from the heart. Other places in Scripture says, let that not be a burden. Oh, crap, another thing I've got to take off the burden list. But there are definitions of how we're supposed to love each other. It's not just emotions but sacrifice and obedience to God's Word. We're supposed to keep our behavior excellent in our dispersion. In our dispersion. We are, uh, the church is a dispersion entity. That's all it's ever been. All it's ever designed to be. It's never designed to be the ruling authorities. <laughs> never designed to be a government. 
It's not designed to do that. And tragedy ensues when people mistake that. So we're not trying to fix that. Don't mistake me here. But keeping our behavior excellent, doing what is right, doing what is right, and exercising our cognitive abilities to understand that no matter what it brings, that doing what is right is better. Even when we suffer for it, we suffer for doing what is right. That is better. That is the mind, the thought that Christ had as his priority in his earthly ministry, according to Peter, that doing what is right and suffering is better. So keep your behavior excellent. Do what is right. Even when we are reviled, verbal hatred, verbal abuse, simply for believing in Christ and proclaiming his name, Scripture, Peter, we are blessed. We're blessed. Because we know in that day, Luke, uh, Jesus says in Luke, right, leap for joy on that day. Woohoo! <laughs> because you know that today you succeeded. Today you win. Today, to quote a guy I won't quote by name, you're living your best life now. Reward. It's coming to you. Leap for joy when you're reviled. You're blessed. That Jesus guy is a lot of fun at parties, I bet. You know, no one called him Eeyore. <laughs> you start talking about rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Most American church members will refer to you as a pessimist and an Eeyore in your life. It's not what it is. You're blessed when you're reviled, when I'm reviled. Verse 15 makes some progression, right? He says, you're blessed if you're reviled for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory. Remember, God is expressing his approval of your behavior in the midst of your reviling by the world. That's the picture. The way that the spirit descended upon Christ, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, it is the same concept. But verse 15 gives you the corollary, right? Ensure that none of you suffers as a murderer. Ensure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or doer of evil or troublesome meddler. Now, these are, these are crimes, generally, at least the first three. Let's start, with the, let's start with the first ones. Those are crimes. No one's surprised if I tell you, generally, don't be a criminal. Now, listen. Listen. Technically speaking, I have been a criminal. I have been. When we opened our doors, technically, it was illegal to do so. Understand that. I will not always tell you not to be a criminal. Because the government can make you a criminal any time the heck it wants. But universally, these three things, right, are crimes in every civilization. You can't go around murdering people. Unless you're an alphabet soup agency. But 
individually, you cannot go kill people with, you know, premeditated intent. That's murder. You can't be motivated by that. You can't go around taking other people's stuff. Somebody chuckled. Unless you're the government. Sorry. You can't. If you're bullyish enough. You can't do those things in any culture. You cannot be a doer of, of wickedness. Every civilization may define those slightly different. That's, those are universal categories. Universal categories. Don't suffer that way. The best way, right, to avoid suffering for those things is not to do them. You might get away from some kind of suffering if you did it secretly or you're very skillful at it, but that's not the idea. Don't suffer for doing those things and don't obtain the reputation for being that person, right? How many times does it take to murder somebody for you to be called a murderer? Just one time. How many times of thievery does it take for you to be a thief? One. That's interesting. We ought to note that the audience here is who? Okay, let's stop. Nobody answered. That's okay. I want to I get you up to speed. All of the New Testament is written to the same audience, roughly speaking. All of it. Believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, the original audience that Jesus is talking to in the Gospels, we can talk about, but the writing of the Gospels, the writing of the Epistles, the writing of all of those things in their time period was written to believers in Jesus Christ for information, informative purposes, to teach them. Now, I will have to admit, I don't spend a lot of time up here telling you all not to be murderers. But Peter felt the need to tell these members of an early church, do not suffer for that reason. Do not take the legitimate difficulties that you are experiencing in life and let that cause you to respond in a way that is wicked and evil and criminal. Don't be a murderer. Don't suffer for that. Don't murder other people. Don't take other people's stuff. Don't be a doer of evil. All things that he's saying to believers in Jesus Christ. Now, again, you get called a murderer if you do it once. You get called a thief if you do it once. Those are nouns. Those are essentially titles. The third category is an adjective. There's a little bit of a difference in the way that's described. A doer of evil. You do one evil thing, our culture says you made a mistake. Right? That's not what this means. This means you've earned a reputation for being a doer of evil. Now that's an important distinction to make. Because there are huge portions of the church today in the world, in the United States, and in El Paso that will tell you that believers are, true believers, they'll say, are not capable of doing habitual evil things. And that a true believer would never choose to sin. Peter disagrees. 
He says you can be a habitual doer of evil. You can be described by the adjective doer of evil. I won't say it in Greek because then we'll lose all of the boys under 16. There's the way it's pronounced. A doer of evil. I know because I've done it. If you don't remember... Why does he tell believers not to suffer as murderers? Because they need to hear that. No amount of difficulty in your life warrants you premeditating and murdering someone. No amount of difficulty, no amount of anger in your life should cause you to decide to suffer for being a thief or to engage in habitual, repetitive purposeful doing of evil. Don't be a doer of evil. Peter warns them, don't engage in purposeful and habitual sin that's uncategorized. (laughs) Murder is a pretty narrow category, theft. Don't be a habitual doer of bad stuff. Causes suffering and pain. Not because, he, he said, don't do it because it's bad. Right? We, we haven't said it in a while, but El Paso Bible Church, why don't we sin? Why shouldn't we sin? You remember, sin is bad for us. Sin is bad for us. Have you ever suffered the evils of someone's sin against you? Uh, maybe I should. Is there anyone in the room who has never suffered the evils of sin against them? That's what I should ask. Is there anyone that doesn't fall into that category? Don't lie to me and tell me that somebody has never suffered the evils of your sin against them. Thankfully, we know from 1 Peter that love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that the suffering stops entirely. Shouldn't do bad things to people because it's bad. Not because it changes your identity or determines your identity or even provides evidence of your identity. This is something we have to acclimate to as believers, right? The facts, right, that there are, there, there are no sins, no sins that an unbeliever can commit that are excluded from us that we could commit. We can commit them. We can commit them on purpose. We can commit them habitually. And sometimes the effects are going to be drastically more severe because people trust us. They don't defend themselves from that same behavior. That, that's a terrible thing, right? And that's why I object when some idiot says that because you're a believer, you can't engage in habitual, purposeful sin. That's cheap chicken baloney, folks. That's horrible doctrine. The Bible never teaches that. Never. Never. He warns against it. What about the last one? I love the last one. Because it's its own category also. I like the NASB. The NASB punted here. It says, let none of you suffer as a troublesome meddler. When was the last time you had a prayer request to heal somebody of their troublesome meddlingness? 
Are those words you use? No? How about this one? A gossipy busybody. Oh, crap. Now he's getting it. Now we know what it means. A troublesome meddler might be, you know, Mr. Bean throwing a wrench in something, right? He's troublesome. He's a meddler. This is intention. This is somebody who is motivated to get up in people's business that they have no business being in. It has nothing to do with loving that person. It has nothing to do with covering a multitude of sins. It has being a thorn in the flesh of somebody else. By the way, there's a lot of ink spilt over what the thorn in the flesh is. Every pastor knows it was a human being in the church. It's only the academics that argue the stupidity of the other options. <laughs> thorn in the flesh is only ever a person in Scripture. And that's not the only reference to it. The troublesome meddlers are people that are up in things that they shouldn't be up in. They have no resolution. They are simply destructive. Can a true believer do that? They're some of the experts at it, actually. They're experts. Highly refined, right? We say that about the Roman Empire when we talk about crucifixion. They didn't invent it, but they were the best at it. We could say the same things about church being gossipy busybodies. They didn't invent it, but they're the best at it a lot of times. Don't suffer for that. Don't cause suffering. The, the truth is, though, that like this, this is one of those kind of acceptable sins. Most people are unwilling to call somebody what they are when they're being gossipy busybodies, troublesome meddlers. Yeah? You want to know why? Because they Jesus-juke it. They Jesus-juke it. They frost it with all sorts of Bible. They frost it with being a prayer request. They frost it with care and concern and love. An unbiblical definition of love, usually. They're not sacrificing anything, and they're not seeking the best interest of the person that they supposedly love. Gossiping busybody. It's like when we're teaching through Paul, and he's talking again to believers, and he warns them that their position in the kingdom will not be they will not have a position of co-rulership in the kingdom, believers. If you're a homosexual, and the whole church is like, yeah, there's consequences to that sin. There are. It's a sin. There are consequences to it. They will not inherit the kingdom. They will not inherit that position of authority of rulership, co-rulership in the kingdom. It's true. doesn't mean they won't enter it. But then we get a few words down, and it says neither gluttons. And everybody says, well, that's got that's to be a textual variant. That's got to be a textual variant. He can't mean to put homosexuals and gluttons in the same category. He not only does it once, he does it several times. 
See, we've categorized something as unacceptable versus acceptable. In Peter's list, you have don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, a doer of wickedness, or a gossipy busybody. Murderer, thief, malicious gossip. Same category, same passage. Being proactively preoccupied with things that are none of your business. We laugh at that behavior a lot in the church, but Peter links it directly to suffering. And I've said this before, none of us suffer alone. We're part of a body. We're connected. If we suffer in any of these ways, the body suffers. No one serves the Lord. No one serves the Lord by being a murderer by being a thief, a doer of evil, or a gossipy busybody. That's not a category of spiritual work of service. (laughs) Anyway, verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in this name or title I mentioned this last week, I think that it's my understanding likely that the term Christian was first inaugurated as a pejorative. And it was not an honorific. We're, we're fast approaching a time in our country where it's going to return to that, I think. It kind of already is, depending on where you go. Pejorative, something that is critical, denigrating, But if anyone suffers as a little Christ, someone who's following a Christian, that's not a synonym just for a justified person, by the way. Uh, It is a synonym for someone who is faithfully, obediently following Christ. It's more like disciple. Disciple would be a good synonym for Christian. Neither one of those are a great synonym for believer or justified person. If anyone suffers this way, because he's obediently following Christ, he is not to be put to shame. Now, my NASB makes that a middle voice. It's, I think, the passive and the middle kind of interchange. The difference being that the passive is something that's done to you. You understand that. Do you remember your grammar lessons from, do they still teach grammar? Did they still teach grammar in your lifetime? This was like third or fourth grade, maybe, maybe even earlier than that. The difference between a passive and an active. The active, I'm doing something, right? I'm doing the action, the passive, I'm receiving the action. I take it as a passive. There's a third category, which is a reflexive, which means that it's something I'm doing to myself. NASB takes that. So if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. He's not supposed to feel disgrace about it. I don't think it's that, although I don't think you should be ashamed of it. It's a passive And it means that if somebody suffers as a Christian, the rest of the body should not disgrace him for it. And that happens a lot. 
Because we feel humiliation in the community when somebody suffers for what the community says is stupid, foolhardy, and idiotic for following Christ. The last people in the world that should be disgracing somebody for that is the church. But that's what Peter is warning against. You need to recognize when people in the body are suffering for obediently following Christ and do not be among those who shame him or her for this. Does that make sense, the difference? It's not all about your feelings. Most of the Bible is not about your feelings. I hate to tell you that. Like all of it. Not nearly. Except for the parts that tell you to get a hold of yourself. That's the main thing the Scripture wants you to do about your feelings. Get control of them. Renew your mind, and your feelings will follow. passive. Believers are sometimes difficult to be around because of this, because we heap disgrace on people who suffer for the name of Christ. But Peter says that we're the ones with the problem if we do that, because that person is to glory in that. He's to glorify God when he gets called that. It's the same thing. When, when you're reviled for the name of Christ, Understand, that's glory. That's God's approval. That's your progress report. That's a cause to leap for joy. The individual who suffers for obediently following Christ is supposed to glorify God that he was given the opportunity to suffer for that reason, without disgrace from the local body. Uh, We have examples of that. One of the earliest ones is when the, the disciples themselves went forth and praised and glorified God, it says, because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. I think that was early enough in the church that when they got back to it, the, the rest of the church wasn't humiliated by that. But hypothetically, right? Hypothetically, you could understand in this climate how you could go down on a street corner and tell somebody about Jesus and absolutely get the living tarnation beaten out of you? No? Can you not hypothetically imagine that in the United States yet? Because I can. It's not that hypothetical. But I can also hypothetically think about the following someday, somebody coming in with the tarnation beat out of them and a church ridiculing them for it and say, what do you think, stupid? That's what's not supposed to happen. That's what's not supposed to happen. It doesn't mean you don't go out and tell people about Jesus. It doesn't mean you get the ever-loving tarnation beat out of you for it. But it means that at least when you come back to the local body, People are able to glory with you in it. That you are able to suffer. That you are worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. I tell you this ahead of time. I'm not sure that it is directly and immediately relevant to you, but it will be. It will be. I have no doubt of that. Paul was even told. For Paul, I think it was less surprising in some ways. 
Though you remember when Paul was struck blind, he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Jesus did not tell him immediately, I will show you how much you must suffer. He told Ananias, the man who was designed to disciple him and restore him. Ananias, you have to serve this man because I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. I'm going to show him. And you're going to help me. For it is time. Pay attention here, guys. This, this verse gets some wonky doctrine thrown at it. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. A lot of people get told that there is no judgment ever. We've talked about the nature of judgment for the believer. What is it? Actually, all judgment, krima, means to assess. You might say to discern. It is not the same as to punish. And a lot of people say, make the mistake there, right, that judgment means to punish. I exercise judgment as a parent all the time. Parents, do you do this? Do you decide not to punish sometimes? Yes. You have still judged. You've still made a judgment. If judgment, it is about time, Peter, that he lived with the understanding that the return of Christ for the church was imminent. Do you know what that means? Imminent? Lunchtime is imminent. Could happen at any time as soon as Pastor Josh finishes. But you don't know exactly when it will happen because you don't know exactly when I'll finish, right? I'm pretty consistent, but you don't know for sure. Peter's living in the imminent expectation of Jesus returning in the, for the church in the sky. And when he comes for the church, after that, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bima. That is the judgment. It is about to begin. It is imminent. It is to be expected. We don't know the time. It could be today. God bless us with such a reality. Maranatha is one of my favorite teachers. Would end every chapel message and every church service. Lord, come quickly. It could happen. And it is that judgment, he says. That's beginning with the household of God. That judgment comes first. It comes at least a thousand years before what we know as the great white throne judgment. Remember we talked about this. That Christ is the judge of the living. The, those who are alive in Christ. He judges the living and the dead. Two different judgments. The bema, the judgment seat of Christ, is the judgment of the living. The great white throne is at the end. The end of the book, Revelation 20, the judgment of the dead. All those who are before the Bema are alive when they get there. They are alive in Christ when they leave. All those that come to the great white throne are dead in their trespasses and sins when they get there, and they're dead when they leave. A thousand years plus later, 
When Peter says judgment for the household of God is about to begin, he's not talking about that they're all going to get judged at the same time. He's saying one is nearer than the other. And it is about to begin as soon as Jesus comes for us, for the household of God. It does not mean that we appear before the same judgment that unbelievers. That isn't scriptural record. That is not what the Bible teaches. But get it out of your head that, the, that judgment is the same as punishment. That will help you go, it'll go a long way. If you understand the judgment seat of Christ to be the punishment seat of Christ, you've screwed up way before you've even bothered to engage the information. Understand the words before you try to understand the doctrine. Right? We think we wouldn't have to say that. But we're having to almost rebuild the English language from scratch at some points, right? That judgment is coming first, he says. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, who are living when we get there and living when we leave, what will be the outcome for those who do not, mine says obey, it's apetheo, who are unpersuaded by the gospel of God? Obey is okay because the gospel has an obedience mandate to it, right? When you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody, it is inherent. You are saying, believe this. He who believes in me has eternal life. Jesus says to his own friend, he who (laughs) believes in me lives even though he dies. Martha, do you believe that? Do you? The command of the gospel is to be persuaded by it. To believe it. Something is true. Our judgment is coming. We know who we are in Christ. We know that we are choice aliens. We know all of the blessings that are to come, the future that we hold. But we also know the outcome for those who are unpersuaded by the gospel of God. And then he goes on in verse 18 to to explain... (laughs) A little bit more, he quotes the scripture. He says, if it is with difficulty that the righteous are being saved, it's a present active indicative there. I don't think that it's a historical present there. NSB says, is saved, meaning that most people take that to mean that it's really difficult for you to believe in Jesus, that it requires a lot of you. It doesn't. What this says is that in your life right now, There are three things that are true of you if you have believed in Jesus. There are a lot more than three, but give me a a minute, okay? You have been saved. You are justified. That's your identity in Christ. The love of Christ from which you cannot be separated is your identity in Him. We are clothed with Him. Our future is secure, perfectly secure from the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, period. No exceptions, and I brook no argument on that point. Not being a very good, inoffensive nitwit, am I? You've been saved. We know the future is to be like Christ when we see Him as He truly is. That's in 1 John 3, right? We have an imperishable inheritance because we will be imperishable, glorified like Him, and we will receive our imperishable inheritance. And there's a middle spot 
Everybody here is in the middle spot. Right? We're all here. I'm, I'm just looking for a slight nod of acknowledgement. That's all. I don't even need verbal aid. We're in the middle. You're saved. I've asked you a hundred times. You're justified. You're going to heaven when you die. That means I know something about your future. But in the middle, we are being saved. We are being sanctified, meaning that we are growing, maturing, experiencing, hopefully, more freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Peter is saying that in this life, you are being saved and your life is tough. With great difficulty. Right now you're being saved from the power of sin in your life. It is with great difficulty. But the thing that we know about difficulty in the Christian life, in the middle part, is that the difficulty has purpose. It has purpose. It's in the midst of great difficulty that the righteous is being saved. But what will become of the godless man and the sinner? You do know that believers are not the only ones who have difficulties. You did know that, right? Do you all know some unbelievers? Do you know anyone whose life is just working out perfect? They could say the same things that I say. I feel like I'm dragging a burden that I can't haul anymore. I feel like I'm angry every day. But at the end of the day, I can say, I can say that I know who I am and I know why I'm suffering difficulty. And I know that I'm supposed to do what is right because it is better, because God honors it. That when people revile me, I can count myself blessed. What does an unbeliever say? What do they say? Well, some of them become nihilists. Wonder why? No purpose to their difficulties. I'm glad the primordial soup loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I don't know. in those difficulties that we're being saved but the godless man the sinner just suffers difficulties with no hope and he synthesizes that for us applies it to us therefore y'all know what that means without me saying it right because I'm not dorky enough to say it therefore Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust or entrust their souls, their lives, suke, the being, that's me, I'm a suke, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I need to understand the distinction between the suffering and the difficulties the unbeliever experiences and the ones that I experience. And I need, when Scripture tells me to suffer for doing what is right because it's better, I need to believe Him. I need to entrust that 
no matter how severe it gets. Remember, the, the examples were extreme. The examples were Christ himself and Noah. Noah would have gotten fired from a church plant three years in. I know. But he was faithful for 120 years because he knew he worked for the Lord. <laughs> no one got to fire him. We entrust, we entrust the result to the faithful creator who will do what is right. That we can face it for the sake of the name faithfully. Sometimes I even manage a smile. in the midst of it. Because when we suffer for doing what is right, this is how it's better, because we can trust the faithful creator to do what is right with it. We do not have to figure it out. Aren't you thankful that you are not responsible for strategizing, having an exit strategy for your difficulties? That may not sound very American to you. <laughs> you can't. Scripture tells you not only that you can't, but that you shouldn't when it comes to suffering for the name of Christ. Because you're asking for somebody to get you out of the greatest opportunities you have in your life. The ones that have the most eternal significance. The ones that he rewards. The ones that if we could see what he had in store for us, we would leap for joy today because of the way that we suffer. tremendous gift that he's given us with this life as we look to his return. We're remembering this morning the gift of his life that was laid down for us, that gave us life in Christ, simply by grace, through faith alone, simply, freely, freely. It was without cost because it cost him so greatly. But we're remiss if we just think about the past because Paul says this, that when we do this, when we remember him, we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim his death as being a present significant event, the present significant event but we proclaim it until he comes. I go back and forth. I go back and forth thinking what would be the ideal circumstance for Jesus to come back for the church. Uh, there have been times where I was 40 feet up in the air on a broken man lift with 80,000 dangerous bees flying around me thinking, Lord, that'd be, this would be a good time. This would be a great time. Then I don't have to worry about finishing this and getting paid for it. I didn't charge enough for that. Almost can't charge enough for it. People think you're a lunatic. And then sometimes I think, you know what would be great? As if we were here, if we were here, and as I say the words, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That'd be pretty good too. 
So let's proclaim it together. Um, I'll give you a few moments. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we want you to participate. This is the Lord's table, and he wants you to participate. But I'll give you a few moments to pray uh, or spend time with the Lord if that is what you need to do. Most of us probably do. And then I'll ask the men to come forward. come forward.
that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you stand with us? We'll dismiss. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body. Bless you guys. See you next Sunday.